Good to see you here at the EU today. For those of you I haven't met, my name's Rowan Kemp. I'm senior staff worker here with the EU. It's great that you could join us for this lunchtime meeting. Let's pray as we come to listen to God's word recorded for us here in Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity today to gather in the name of the risen Lord Jesus to hear from you through your word, through this testimony of your chosen eyewitnesses. We pray, Father, that by your spirit you might grant us understanding of the truths that we read and hear about today. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a revised outline behind me up on the board and uh, you might like to open up your Bibles to John chapters 14 through to 16 and grab a pen. Let's get underway. Well, it's the night of Jesus' betrayal. Within 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. If that were you, that would probably focus your mind. Within 24 hours, Jesus would be dead. Judas, his betrayer, is already on his way right now to collect the detachment of soldiers and officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees who are determined to see this upstart, this blasphemous troublemaker, this Jesus from Nazareth. They determined to see this bloke dead. Judas is on his way to get them right now. And Jesus knows it. Jesus is still in the room with the rest of the disciples. He knows that he does not have long left. And he says to them, chapter 13, verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Well, the disciples don't really get it. They're confused and distressed. They question him, where are you going, Lord? How can we know the way? Why can't we follow you? And Jesus knows it isn't going to be easy for them. Peter talks it up big, as seems to be his way sometimes. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But with divinely given insight, Jesus replies, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And it's not just Peter. A bit later on in the evening, in chapter 16, 31 and 32, after the disciples profess their belief that Jesus, you're the one who's come from God. You're the one who has all knowledge. Jesus tells them the truth. He says, do you now believe? Well, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Not such a great night for Jesus, you might think. One of his hand-picked twelve is currently now on his way to betray him to death. Another one is about to deny him three times, and all the others, imminently, are going to desert him. Not such a great night for the Lord Jesus. Well, what will Jesus do in the short time then that he has left? One thing that we'll find he'll do is he will pray. Chapter 17 is the prayer that Jesus prayed in the situation. And we're going to look at that prayer next week. The other thing Jesus does is he takes this last opportunity to speak to his disciples, minus Judas. In particular, he does two things. He prepares them and he comforts them. See, these disciples were about to head on into an entirely new type of existence, a new reality, life without their master. 
How do you be a disciple of Jesus if Jesus isn't around? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might say, well, it's not so hard. It's a fairly standard state of affairs for us. But it wasn't so obvious at the time for them. How do you follow the King of Israel when he's disappeared from view? How do you know if you're doing the right thing without Jesus to tell you? This was a new situation with which they had to deal. And it was a very uncertain one for them. So Jesus' response is to comfort them and to prepare them. He comforts them by telling them that they don't need to be anxious. They don't need to be fearful. Instead, they can share Jesus' own peace in this situation. Because even in these events, it is not outside Jesus' control or the control of his Father. You can see that three times through what Jesus says to them. At the beginning, in chapter 14, verse 1, there's this word of comfort. And again, in the middle, chapter 14, verse 27. And again, at the end, in chapter 16, verse 33. Three sort of moments of very explicit comfort to these disciples. But today I'm going to focus not on the comfort that Jesus offers, but more on the preparation with which he tries to set the disciples up for his absence. But as we look at Jesus' preparation, it raises what I've called an interpretive issue for us reading it today. So Jesus is thinking here on two different timescales as he talks to his disciples. First of all, he knows that he's going to return to this group of disciples in just a few days. After Jesus' death, he's going to be raised by his father and he will return to the disciples in just a few days. So what Jesus is trying to do on one hand is prepare them for this, sh this short but shocking series of events of the next few days. And you can see that a few times, I think chapter 14, verses 18 and 19 and chapter 16, 19 and 22 is where Jesus is preparing them for this return very soon in resurrection. But Jesus is also working with a long time frame because he knows that after his resurrection, he's going to leave the disciples yet again and this time go to his heavenly father. But then eventually at the very end of the age, Jesus will return to the disciples and that's a return for which you and I are still waiting today. And you can see that this longer time frame is in Jesus' mind as well when he talks about the persecution that the disciples will face. He speaks there of the disciples being thrown out of the synagogue, even killed. Now that's not something that's going to happen just between Jesus' death and resurrection. They're not going to be killed in just those couple of days. He's thinking long term. After he's returned in resurrection, ascended to the Father before he comes back at the end of the age. What's it going to be like for his disciples in that time frame? And he's trying to prepare them for that. So as we read through these chapters, we need to keep the two time frames with which Jesus is working in mind. And each time we need to think about what sort of return is Jesus talking about? His return at resurrection or his return at the end of the age? Now, while that might make it a bit complicated, just as we read through, the long time frame is that which actually makes these chapters so relevant directly to you and me. Because our situation really, in some ways, is very similar to these first disciples. After Jesus' resurrection, they're going to have to persevere as his disciples to the very end. And that's the situation that you and I find ourselves in while we wait for Jesus' return. So there's much comfort here for us. There's also much preparation from the Lord Jesus to you and me for how we might live as his disciples.
in this present age. So, let's look at this in a bit more detail then. Let's first of all look at Jesus' warning. Jesus' warning to his disciples. Well, the point here to note is this. And it's really good news. The world will hate Jesus' disciples in the same way it hates Jesus. That's Jesus' warning. The world is going to hate you because it hated me. Have a look there in your Bible at chapter 15, verse 18 to 21. Jesus says to them, If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, when Jesus talks about the world here, as you can see it right through John's Gospel, he's not talking about the globe that we call the earth. What Jesus means when he talks about the world, in the words of one commentator, is the created moral order which is in active rebellion against God. That's what he means by the world, the created moral order which is in active rebellion against God. That is, he means the world of people who've turned their back on God and on the revelation of God in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus already told us about God's attitude to this world that is in rebellion against him. What do you imagine might be God's attitude to the world that has rejected him? Well, God's attitude to the world, we're told, is that he loved the world. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. That's God's attitude to the world. What's the world's attitude to God? Well, here in chapter 15, Jesus says the world hates Jesus. Verse 18, it persecuted him. Verse 20. And you can see that hatred and persecution crystallised in the fact that he put him to death. So ironically, you can look at the cross of Jesus and you see there both God's attitude to the world, you see God's love, and at the same moment you see the world's hatred of God because it put God the Son to death. All there when you look at Jesus on the cross. But the crunch point for the disciples is that this stance that the world takes towards God and his son Jesus, that stance is exactly the same when the world looks at the disciples. The disciples aren't going to get it any easier once Jesus disappears from view. It's going to be more of the same, even to death, as it was in Jesus' case. That's what Jesus says, chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Indeed, says Jesus, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. The world is going to persecute Jesus' followers because it's out of relationship with God the Father and his son Jesus and because it hates this message about Jesus. Because this message about Jesus exposes the world's sinful heart and its evil deeds. 
That's what we read about in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And Jesus has chosen this first bunch of disciples to be his authoritative witnesses to the world. And he's going to equip them with his spirit so that they might take on this task of proclaiming, continue to proclaim Jesus to this world that hates this message. That's why the world is going to hate the disciples, because this bunch of disciples is going to carry on Jesus' ministry, a ministry which exposes the world's sinful heart and its evil deeds. You can chase that up in chapter 15 there, verses 22 to 24, talk about Jesus' ministry to the world that exposes their sin. And chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, talk about how the disciples are to carry on this ministry in the power of the Spirit. Well, why does Jesus tell the disciples this great happy news that the world's going to hate them, maybe even kill them? Well, he does it so that they won't abandon him. He does it so that they won't stumble. Chapter 16, verse 1 there. I've said these things to you, says Jesus, to keep you from stumbling. See, it's so easy when you're faced with hatred and persecution from the world because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's easy in that situation to want to give up your faith. Much of the New Testament is written to Christians who are in exactly that situation, facing real opposition under the temptation to give up their faith. This persecution and opposition can be a real stumbling block to which disciples of Jesus might trip over and fall. But by forewarning them, Jesus hopes to forearm them, to prevent them from giving up in the face of the world's antagonism, especially with him no longer on the scene. You can see this, uh, say, in chapter 16, verse 4. But I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. If uh, you go to your favourite internet search engine and type in the following words, World Watch List 2006, World Watch List 2006, what will come up, uh, if you look at the options there, will be a list of countries around the world that are actively persecuting Christians today. World Watch List 2006. It lists countries that are actively persecuting Christians, that are oppressing Christians, or place various levels of restrictions on Christians' freedom. Uh, I typed it in today, and uh, the list was current as of January this year, 2006. What are the top 10 countries where Christians are persecuted today? Here's the list. North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Somalia, the Maldives, Bhutan, Vietnam, Yemen, Laos and China. Okay, just sounds like a list of countries. How many Christians live in those countries? In those, just those 10 countries, and there's many more, there's about 50, there's 50 countries on the list. Just in the top 10, how many Christians? 100 million. 100 million Christians live in the 10 countries that are the most opposed to the Christian faith. Why do I tell you that? I, th I tell you that because it's easy for us living in comfortable Australia where there's very little, well, no state 
or national persecution of Christians, to just go, yes, 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 as we read through these persecution sections of the New Testament. But this is the situation that millions and millions of our Christian brothers around the world are facing. They listen to Jesus' words here and they cling up. This is life for them. So I tell you to us today because I think we need to pray that this persecution would not be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters. That's how we can love them. We need to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. We might pray that they might know Jesus' peace and not anxiety and fear in their situation. But even more, should we sit idly by and watch them suffer? Is that what our love for them ought to look like? We'll pray, yes, but sit on our hands. I mean, maybe we should be making use of the freedom and avenues we have in this country to express our own views to seek to win for them more freedom. You might like to pick that up and talk with me later about that. But secondly, just thinking about persecution... Whilst there's no state or national persecution here in Australia, certainly there are persecuted Christians in our own community here. Particularly I'm thinking of brothers and sisters in Christ who've come to Jesus out of another faith. And because they've come to Jesus, they are now cut off from their family. And they're ostracised from their own cultural community. We have persecuted brothers and sisters here in our own family in Christ. And so I want to just say to us, we need to be mindful of that and seek to, again, love our Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering that sort of way, in particular, maybe fulfil Jesus' promise to them in Mark 10, 29 and 30, that for all those who've left mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters for Jesus' sake and the sake of the gospel, that they might receive a hundred times in this age mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters. That is, that they might have a new family amongst the people of faith. How will we love those who are persecuted even in our midst? And thirdly, I just think on persecution, we need to keep praying for our own country that we might enjoy religious freedom. But I say we should pray for that not because, frankly, we just want to live a pretty comfortable life. I mean, we all want that, but that's not really the reason I think we ought to pray for it. We ought to pray that God might maintain the religious freedom in this country for the sake of the proclamation of the Lord Jesus so that we might freely proclaim him to our university, to our friends and family, to all who are lost and are in need of his grace. Well, let's move on to the next point there, Jesus' presence. And here we're talking about the spirit, the spirit of truth. Now, there's a lot about the spirit that we can learn in all of the New Testament. And I'm not even going to try to give an overview of what the New Testament says about the Spirit uh, here in these passages. One day we'll do it at an annual conference and take our leisure to do it. But today I want to focus on what we learn about the Spirit just from these couple of chapters, John 14 to 16. And we actually learn a heck of a lot. But there's an important piece of background that you need to bear in mind as we read what Jesus says about the Spirit. That is... When we read about the ministry of the Spirit, we're to remember that the giving of the Spirit to Jesus' disciples, that was a moment of earth-shattering importance in God's plan of salvation. 
earth-shattering. See, because God's promise to his people, the Israelites, had been that one day, finally, eventually, he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that when he poured out his spirit, this would be the marker of the new age that was dawning. It would be the mark of the end of the exile of God's people. It would be the time of the new covenant, the time of the inaugurated kingdom of God, the time of the rule of the new King David who would rule on his throne forever. Think any of those sort of Old Testament ideas, they all come to a climax in the ministry of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit. And you can see that right back in John chapter 1, verse 32 to 34, where... John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Christ and through this one, the Son of God, the Spirit will be poured out. So let's grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying here when he talks about the Spirit. He's saying, yep, I'm leaving you, but the great moment of the Spirit is coming. And let me tell you all about it. Six things he says about the Spirit. Six things. First thing he says is this, he gives us the Spirit's name. You say, that's not too hard, it's called the Spirit, Rowan. Actually, there's four different places in these passages where it's called the Paraclete. Now, depending what version, English version you're reading, it'll be translated differently. Paraclete is the way it's said in the original, but uh, if you're reading the NIV, it says Counselor, calls the Spirit the Counselor. If you're reading the NRSV, it'll call it the Spirit, the Advocate. If you're reading the ESV, it'll call the Spirit the Helper. How come they all translate this word paraclete so differently? Well, it's because the word paraclete literally means one who draws alongside. So, for instance, someone who draws alongside you might be a helper, an encourager, an exhorter, even someone who comforts you. But someone might also draw alongside you because... You're in a bit of a situation and you need legal representation. You need someone to make a legal defence on your behalf. Hence, advocate. So they've also picked up different uh, connotations of this word paraclete. Which one best works? Well, it just sort of depends on the context, really. You've got to look to see what else does Jesus say about this spirit, this helper, advocate, counsellor who would come. Well, the second thing we learn about the spirit is that he is a replacement a permanent replacement for the physical presence of Jesus. So have a look there in chapter 14, verse 16, and you can see there that the Spirit is called by Jesus another paraclete, another advocate, who in contrast to the departing Jesus will be with these disciples forever. Now it implies there that Jesus himself has been a paraclete, an advocate, a helper, a counsellor to the disciples, but now he's about to leave, so he's going to send a replacement for his physical presence. That will be this spirit who will be with them forever. He will not only be with them in verse 17 of chapter 14, but he will actually be in them, this spirit. So we learn that the spirit's a permanent replacement for the physical presence of Jesus. Third thing we learn, the Spirit is the presence of the Father and the Son. Now, you're probably going, hang on, Rowan, you just said the Spirit is a replacement for the physical presence of Jesus, and now you're saying the Spirit is the presence of the Father and the Son. What are you talking about here? Well, let's see what Jesus says. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered him, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them. And then this is the key bit. And we will come to them, that is the Father and the Son, will come to them and make our home with them. 
So you notice here that it's not Jesus coming to take the disciples back to the Father with him. Though that's in these passages, that's in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. That's Jesus' return at the end of the age. Here, it's the Father and the Son will come to them and make their home with them. I think the best way to understand this verse is to see it fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit into the hearts and minds of the disciples. Uh, so, for instance, elsewhere in the New Testament, say in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 to 14, the Spirit is sometimes called the Spirit of Christ and also the Spirit of God or sometimes even called Christ in you. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. The Spirit is the real presence of Father and Son in the disciples. But at the same time, as always when we start thinking about God as Trinity, as Father, Son and Spirit, got to be careful here not to collapse one of the persons of the Trinity into the others. You have to maintain Father, Son and Spirit as distinct they're clearly distinguishable in this passage. For instance, chapter 14 there, verse 16, Jesus can say, And I, the Son, will ask for Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the Spirit. They're clearly distinguished. So we can't collapse them into each other, but neither can we entirely separate them from each other. So the Father and the Son come to dwell in the believer in the person of the Spirit. So it's really the mystery of our triune God. How do we hold the distinction but the inseparability of these three? Now, if you want to think more about that and want all that cleared up, you can just get hold of the annual conference talks because I tell you there's a talk that was just made the Trinity so perfectly clear. <laughs> You're laughing. Was that because you were there? Okay. Oh, you might like to get hold of the MP3s and try to wrestle with these glorious truths a bit more deeply. Fourth thing we learn about the Spirit here. The Spirit testifies about Jesus to the disciples. The Spirit testifies about Jesus to the disciples. Now, notice that in each chapter here, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 15, verse 26, and chapter 16, verse 13. It's called the Spirit of Truth. He's the Spirit, in chapter 15, 13, that will guide the disciples in all truth. Now, I reckon that's a very cool reality because what it means is we can finally get rid of all those hopelessly inaccurate lie detectors in our police stations. I mean, we've all watched those American TV shows. You know, we know that lie detectors are not terribly reliable. And so all we need to do is put a Christian in each police station because the Christians have the spirit of truth in them, plonk them in the interview room, and whenever the suspected criminal says, oh, but blah, 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 they go, no, 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 no. I have the spirit of truth, and that's not right. <laughs> Alternatively, if you're a Christian person, you should be getting 100% in all your exams, if you're filled with the spirit, that is. Is that what it means, spirit of truth? No, no, the way to understand the spirit is to think about Jesus. Last week, when we were looking at John chapter 14, verse 6, what did we learn about Jesus? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is, Jesus is the truth about God. And now Jesus, the truth about God, is leaving. So what does he do? He sends the spirit of truth into the disciples so that they might understand. 
In particular, what the Spirit will do is help them understand Jesus, the truth. You can see that there in chapter 16, verse 15. He will take the things, the truths of Jesus and declare them to the disciples. Or elsewhere in chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says, the Spirit will testify about me. Or chapter 14, verse 26, the Spirit will remind you of all that I've said to you. The task of the Spirit is to bring home the truths about Jesus to the disciples. The Spirit's ministry, if you like, is a ministry of reminder. It's not a ministry necessarily of all new information. A reminder of who Jesus is, granting understanding of what Jesus has said, but also, I think, granting understanding of what Jesus did, including his death and resurrection. So in that way, the Spirit will bring glory to Jesus. Well, the fifth thing here about the Spirit, the Spirit brings change to the world's hard heart. The Spirit brings change to the world's hard heart. This is a great, wonderful truth. When you think about that Jesus' disciples are going to face hatred and persecution at the hands of the world, that the Spirit will bring change to the world's hard heart. Have a look there at John chapter 16, verse 7 to 11. John 16, 7 to 11. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Really? It's in our interest that you leave us now? Jesus says, yes, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. You will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Now, Jesus has just been saying how the disciples are going to face hatred and persecution from this unbelieving world. And now he's saying that it's to the disciples' advantage that he goes because then the Spirit will come and convict the world where they've got it wrong. This is the, the work that the Spirit will do in the world's hard and rebellious hearts so that people might realise the error of their ways with respect to the Lord Jesus. And the three things it'll do there, the Spirit First of all, with regard to sin, see, what's the heart of sin? The heart of sin is rejection of Jesus, and that's what the Spirit will address. He'll convict the world that it got Jesus wrong, that it should have believed in him. And you can see it in uh, the early chapters of Acts, when thousands upon thousands, who only weeks before were, were clamouring for Jesus' blood, suddenly under the movement of the Spirit, they say, what must we do to be saved? The second thing the Spirit will do, it will redress the world's misunderstanding of righteousness, what it is to be right or declared right by God. See, when Jesus is around, you say, you want to understand what it is to live righteously, to be righteous with God? Look at this bloke. It's him. But now he says, I'm going to the Father and you won't see me anymore. The Spirit will help the world understand about the true nature of righteousness. I think through the witness and the life of the disciples. The third thing the Spirit will do, it will convict the world about judgment. So what the Spirit's going to do is going to help the world understand that it currently stands condemned with God because it's not believed in Jesus, the Son. Instead, it has sided with the prince of this world, Satan himself. 
But see, in Jesus' imminent death on the cross, God is going to deal the decisive blow to Satan and condemn Satan and win that victory over him, sealing Satan's condemnation. And what the Spirit will do is help the world realise that unless it changes, it faces the same condemnation that Satan faced. That's what the Spirit will do. Help it understand that it's going to face judgment if the world persists in rejection of the Son. Well, the last thing, the sixth thing that the Spirit does, the Spirit works through the eyewitness's testimony. So I want you to notice here that whenever the Spirit's talked about in these passages, as far as I can see, it's always talked about as being given to the disciples. Even though the Spirit, as we've just seen, has a work in convicting the world. But it's given to the disciples. How does that work? Well, I think what it's telling us is that the, the Spirit will be working in and through the disciples' ministry, through the testimony of these eyewitnesses. That's how the Spirit's going to work. It'll work in the disciples to help them understand Jesus better and to remember the meaning and significance of what Jesus said and did. But it's also going to work through their testimony to convict the world of its desperately wrong state with respect to sin and judgment and righteousness. So how does this apply for us? First of all, I want to say, sometimes you might have thought if Jesus was here, that would make things a lot easier or better. I don't think that's what, I don't think Jesus would agree with you actually. It's to your advantage that he left us. So that the Spirit might come into your life, into the, the life of the first disciples, and so that the Spirit might do this work in the hard hearts of the world that they might know the Lord Jesus. It's to your advantage that he's gone away. And what's more, you actually have the very presence of the Father and the Son in your life through the Spirit. Secondly, though, I think there's an incentive here really to keep proclaiming and praying because as we draw the world's attention back to the first eyewitness's testimony, as we keep saying to the world, hey, you need to listen up to what these guys had to say in the Scriptures because they're the ones Jesus, told, uh, Jesus chose to tell the world about himself. Listen to what they have to say. As we draw their attention back to the apostolic testimony, the Spirit is at work in and through their testimony to convict their hearts. So I think there's real motive here to proclaim, to keep proclaiming the apostles' testimony about Jesus and to pray that the Spirit would do it in and through the word as he's promised. Finally, we come to Jesus' command. Jesus' command. Have a look there. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Let's listen again to what Jesus had to say to his disciples here on this night of his betrayal. Chapter 15, 1 to 8. He said to them, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. 
Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Now there's an important background here for what Jesus is saying to his disciples. The background is the Old Testament image of Israel, God's people, pictured as a vine. You can look that up in, say, Psalm 80, verse 9 to 16, Psalm 80, 9 to 16, or Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Jesus is actually saying something here very radical. See, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, were pictured as a vine that God tended. But now Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. Forget national Israel. Forget the Jews. I am the true vine. And those who are in me, those who abide in me, are the true branches. So what Jesus is saying here, he is reformulating the very people of God around himself. He is the new Israel. If you want to be part of the true people of God, then you've got to be connected into him. Now, there's uh, three truths that all branches need to know. And if you're a branch, that is, you're a, someone who claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you need to know three truths about being a branch. First is this. If you don't bear fruit as a branch, you're cut off. You'll be cut off. There in verse 2, verse 6, if you don't bear fruit, you'll be cut off and burnt. That is, producing fruit for us branches is not optional. Second thing, to bear fruit, you have to, it's absolutely essential that you remain in the vine, verses 4 and 5. That is, there's no way you can bear fruit for God without being connected into Jesus. There's no membership of God's people apart from belonging to him. And as we've seen at different points along in our study of this gospel, that speaks very challengingly to those Jews in particular who consider themselves to be members of God's people but without Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, if you're not connected into me, if you don't abide in me, then you're not part of God's people. If you don't remain in the vine, well then, and you bear no fruit, you'll be cut off as a fruitless branch. The third thing, though, need to know about being a branch is that the Father prunes those who do bear fruit so they might bear more fruit. The Father prunes those who bear fruit so they might bear more fruit. That's there in verse 2. So two questions I have here. What then is it to remain in the vine? It's obviously pretty important. What is it to be pruned? The answer is all to do with Jesus' words. Look there again in the second half of verse 2, chapter 15. We're told there, The Father removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. And then this is the key sentence. You have already been cleansed, and now there's a bit of a play on words there that's lost in our English. It's a very similar word to the one for pruning. It's as though Jesus is saying, you've already been pruned by the word that I've spoken to you. We're pruned by Jesus' words. Now, show and tell time. Anyone know what these are? apart from weapons of death that are probably illegal to carry in the state of New South Wales. <laughs> Anyone know what they are? <coughs> now, look, I don't know how to pronounce this word. I was rebuked yesterday in the public meeting. Secateur? 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 
I couldn't spell it either. I had to look up three times in my dictionary. Secateurs, right? It's a very British word, apparently, according to my dictionary. Um, you use it for pruning, right? Snip, snip, snip. Jesus' words are God the Father's secateurs. Jesus' words are God the Father's secateurs. He uses Jesus' words, which are his own words, to prune you, that you might bear more fruit. How does that work? Well, it works by as you obey Jesus' words, you will bear more fruit in your Christian life. See, what's the fruit? The fruit, I think, is everything that flows from having Jesus' word live in you. All the fruit of obedience to his word. And as Jesus' word comes to you, the Father, Secretaries, and you submit to it, you will bear more fruit through your obedience. And uh, what then is the fruit? Certainly it's joy. It's mentioned there in verse 11. is one of the fruit of obedience. It's effective and answered prayer, verse 7. But in particular, Jesus talks about love. Love. And verses 9 to 17 are all about love and obedience. Love is clearly a very big deal for Jesus in these chapters. It's really the heading for the whole second half of the book. If you look to chapter 13, verse 1, the second half of that verse, we're told there that having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. And I think that's looking right all the way through to Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. That's how Jesus loves I mean, there's lots of ways that the New Testament talks about Jesus' death and resurrection. Sometimes it's like victory. Sometimes it's sacrifice. Sometimes it's redemption or glorification. But here, primarily in John's Gospel, I think the one above all else, it's seen as love. That's what Jesus is doing. Loving his own who are in the world to the very end. And so it's not so surprising that when Jesus announces he's about to leave, what's the one thing he tells them above all else to do? Chapter 13 there, verses 34 and 35. Having just said he's about to leave, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This really does seem to be the central thing in Jesus' mind that's going to characterise the life of his disciples in his absence. Love for one another. He says it's a new command. It's not because no one had ever thought of loving each other before. In fact, the Old Testament had it right there. What's new about this command to love? Two things. First of all, we're to love as Jesus loved us. That's new. We have the new standard, the model of love. God's love for us in the person of his son. But secondly, it's new because it's a whole new era. It's the era in which the spirit has been poured out of the inaugurated kingdom. It's the new command that characterises the new age. Above all else, love one another. That's the way the world will know that you're my disciples. And in fact, when you look at these chapters, there's this fantastic love triangle that you're caught up in. You don't think a love triangle is a good thing? <laughs> Let me try to convince you otherwise. I'm going to scribble on the board here. Chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father loved me, so I've loved you. (laughs) 
As the Father's loved me, so I've loved you. Chapter 14, verse 30. I, the Son, love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. Right? Jesus loves his Father and that's seen in obedience. Chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, the Son, they will obey my teaching. Chapter 14, verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. You love Jesus, loved by the Father. And what's more, if you look there in chapter 15, verse 10, obeying is how we stay in the other person's love. That's how we stay in Jesus' love, and obeying the Father is how Jesus stays in his Father's love. Finally, it all comes down to then our obedience, which keeps the triangle together. What do we need to obey? Jesus says, 15.12, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Love each other as I've loved you. I take it from Jesus' words here, and with this I'll finish. Love for one another is the central and absolutely essential mark that will distinguish any group of Christians as Jesus' people. We love one another just as Jesus loved us. That is with the same commitment, the same passion, the same selfless sacrifice. Are you up for that? That's how we express our love for Jesus. That's how we express our love for God. And that's how the world will begin to understand God's love for them in Christ when they see that same sort of love amongst us. Notice he doesn't say, they'll know you're Christians by your preaching. Because anyone can just say the words of God. He doesn't say, they'll know you're Christians by your exciting worship times. Or by the Bible you carry around. Or by your clever EU t-shirt that you wear. Or because you're immersed in Christian activity. They'll know you're my disciples because you love one another. So when you go to your EU small group or your Bible study at church, when you rock up to church on a Sunday or EU during the week, when you meet with people for a prayer triplet, when you hear of another Christian brother or sister who's in some sort of need or situation, friend, is uppermost in your mind, how am I going to love these people? Because that's how the world will know that we're Jesus' followers. Jesus saw that our love for each other would be central in our witness to the world about him. So yes, we proclaim the truth about him, and yes, we proclaim his great love for the world, and we live forth its reality in our life together. So maybe let's talk about that over morning, afternoon tea today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word that we've heard here today might live in us and by your spirit bear much fruit for your glory. Amen.